Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Well, there's only one story in town today, and we're talking, of course, about the reshuffle. This one has been long promised, much gossiped about, and reports suggest frequently threatened by the Prime Minister, and yesterday it finally got underway. I have to say there are other important things going on, and we do know that. The new security pact with the US and Australia, for one, and the continuing row about universal credit. And we're not going to neglect those in the coming days and weeks. But today, it's all about the new faces of the government. So let's discuss Boris Johnson's ministerial restructuring, what the effect on government and its policies is likely to be, and generally make sense of the strong and united team, that's his words, that he's put together. After that, we're going to turn to one of the Prime Minister's other picks, and that's William Shawcross. He's Boris Johnson's preference to be the next Commissioner of Public Appointments. It's a big job, looking after a system which is under strain and in need of reform, the IFG is arguing. We're going to take a look at the role and the person the Prime Minister wants to fill it. So joining me after hours days maybe, of live blogging and graph constructing is IFG Senior Fellow and Historian Kath Haddon. Hi, Kath. Hi, Bronwyn. Tim Durrant, the mastermind of our live blog, is another victim of the reshuffle. He's not well um, at home today. Kath, um, you're still surviving, are you? Uh, we're just about getting through. Yeah, the combination of hybrid working and uh, the way in which reshuffles are quite often very chaotic makes for a fun time. But we seem to successfully be producing charts and um, you know some great analysis uh, from across the Institute. So very pleased with how everyone's working. Great. Well, this one, not so much chaotic as, as, as prolonged. Joining yeah. us as well um, today then is Tom Pope, our Deputy Chief Economist, which is great because under all the reshuffle headlines, we live in very economic times to adapt one well-known newspaper slogan. Tom, great to have you with us. Thanks, Bronwyn. Great to be joining you. Great. And I'm also delighted to be joined in the studio by Daily Telegraph political editor, Ben Riley-Smith. Hi, Ben. Hi, lovely to be here. Ben, really good to have you with us. Let's start with you. So this reshuffle, what was driving it, do you think? Was it reward and punishment, playing to the party membership? What was behind it? Well, the way number 10 is framing it is a delivery reshuffle, quote-unquote. And it was all about, you know, if you look back at the first two years of uh, Boris's premiership, started with Brexit, getting the deal from Europe, getting it through the Commons, and eventually having that election that gave him the landslide. And then he was quite quickly plunged into the pandemic. And the last 18 months really have been dominated by the firefighting with COVID-19. I think Downing Street sees these early weeks of September as a bit of a pivot. Clearly, there is still a threat from COVID and they've laid out a plan to try and manage that in the coming months. But that urgent firefighting when the vaccines weren't there and getting the vaccines and rolling them out um, has ended and they're in a new stage And so halfway through the parliament, roughly, they are thinking, well, we need to drive forward and deliver a lot of the promises that we made in the manifesto. So this reshuffle in Downing Street's eyes is all about trying to put people in those places who can do that. So Michael Gove, who has this record and reputation in Tory circles as a great policy reform and driver, is put into communities and put in charge of the planning overhaul that is going to be so tricky with the Tory backbench and navigating that through Nadim Zahawe, who's proved himself with the vaccine rollout, is put into education, countering a clear political problem there because Gavin Williamson was disliked or disapproved of, not just by the public, but also clearly by Tory members, if, if the opinion polls are to be believed. And then making some other moves, some of them solving political headaches. So 
clearly number 10 thought Dominic Raab wasn't quite working in the foreign office. They insist it wasn't just about Afghanistan. Actually, this was something they'd been planning beforehand. But Liz Truss has had a reputation over three or four different departments of um, being a pretty steady, reliable cabinet minister. So she moves in there. And also Dominic Raab has an interesting background. So he's now in justice and, you know, is a lawyer himself and has been critical of human rights law, uh, has a big challenge about clearing the COVID backlog for the courts. So he's he's slotted in there. So the way they, they, they are framing it is certainly driving forward the domestic reforms so that when you get to the election, whenever it comes to a three years time, you can say we delivered on these big things. So that's very interesting the way you describe it. You, you, you've portrayed it very much as about delivering the government's big promises. Should we look at a public response now or is it really about the next election? I don't think it's about immediately changing faces at the front so that you can win some kind of vote or in one month, two months time. It seems to me they know ultimately Boris will be judged partly on has he delivered more houses as he promised he would? Has he levelled up as he promised he would? And it's Michael Gove who's been put in charge of that and trying to flesh that out and make people understand actually what it really means. Have they cleared the, the, the court's backlog and the problem in the courts? And, and clearly, uh, as we know from last week, you, you know, social care and the NHS backlogs, have they delivered on that? That is how the, that Downing Street is framing it. I always think it's quite an interesting reflection reshuffles on the power of a prime minister uh, and you guys will be f- familiar with reshuffles of the past and thinking of when Gordon Brown tried to move out to Darling as Chancellor and couldn't because Darling said, well, I'm, it's going to be Treasury or nothing, and he couldn't make that move. It actually reflects the power or the weakness of the Prime Minister. And I think this one has shown just, just how strong he is. All right, so we've had, we've, we and Westminster yeah, and the Cabinet have had a reminder of that then. Kath, um, You've been talking a lot and, and broadcasting a lot about um, our, our first thoughts on all this. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as Ben's been pointing out, it's very interesting that the uh, number 10 are really presenting it as about delivery of public services. And, and in theory, that's, man, you know, manner to our ears, because that's always the thing that we at the Institute for Government are focusing on is, is, is this going to be a ministerial team in each of these departments that can deliver on these policies? How much disruption? That's one of the key words, we, one of the key themes we were looking out for, how much disruption in these departments that's going to set them back. Um, but there are signs also that this is just this is also a bit about party loyalty and loyalty to the prime minister in particular. We haven't seen any sort of big star signings from outside. You know, Boris Johnson has, has a, a party where his ministers have been in and out of government for the last decade, but there's no big names coming back into government. We may see a lot of new stars coming through up the ministerial ranks, but no star signings um, at the very highest levels. Uh, So it's really about shuffling the team he had already decided uh, were loyal to him that he wanted to work with. And I do think that the, the Dominic Raab move is quite telling, not least for that Deputy Prime Minister title that he managed to wrangle out of the Prime Minister. And yes, the Alistair Darling, but also Jeremy Hunt, uh, when Theresa May was was Prime Minister, uh, a minister that can go in and say, I will not be moved unless, and then wins the battle, shows that the Prime Minister is not fully ascendant in a reshuffle, and that he's having to balance out a few different things. So some of the spin coming out from number 10 at the moment is just that, is, is spin. All right. So a really interesting point. And we've in general made a big point about how disruptive reshuffles are and and this one as well. What do you make of that 
effect. It can be creative, of course, but it can simply stall a government. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we also had been arguing that there are a number of departments that did need need change. Bronwyn, you yourself uh, were calling for, for Gavin Williamson to go back I last I say I was summer. not the only one on the planet. No, no, absolutely. This is something that, you know, many people have been looking out for. And I think it is a good point that, you know, Boris Johnson has taken so long to act on some of those key posts. He acted quicker on Hancock. For me, the big disruption question is coming today, which is about ministers of state, because you've got departments, I think it's about seven have um, got a a new secretary of state, somebody usually moved uh, into a different position. That's, you know, it's a sort of mid-sized reshuffle from that point of view, though it feels a bit bigger than that. But the key is going to be how many departments have very new um, ministers at all levels. And DfE is a very good example, because uh, overnight, we heard that it's losing its very long serving schools minister, Nick Gibb, which is going to be a huge blow to the departments in terms of continuity experience. So who um, else gets into DfE um, and works alongside Zahawi, who is himself experienced, was a former children's minister. That's going to be a big challenge for the department in in moving forward. Really good point. And Tom, let's look again at this timing question and the disruption. I mean, we're right before the spending review. That's going to be at the end of October and before the climate change summit that takes up the first half of November. And we've had um, Steve Barclay, for example, moved as chief secretary to the treasury, moved in um, into looking after the cabinet office and so on. Does this matter for the tough spending decisions that are coming up? From the perspective of the spending review, I think it's fair to say this wasn't a great time, a, a well-timed reshuffle. And this is going to be the first multi-year settlement for six years. The last multi-year spending review was 2015. And this is the one that is going to be so important to fix those COVID-related problems that, that Ben mentioned, for example, in the courts and the backlog. It's not just the NHS that have had these problems that have built up over the last year. And, and we're well into the spending review process already. So departments have already, um, just earlier this week, submitted their final bids to the Treasury and the next stage is effectively the, the debates and wrangling between the Treasury and departments to agree those final allocations. And then you have new secretaries of state in really key departments for this spending review in education, local government, justice, that are going to need to get on the top of their briefs really quickly and to go into bat for their departments. And in education in particular, Kat's already mentioned, they're not only losing their secretary of state, but also um, the very long-standing schools minister, Nick Gibbs. So that really is, um, as Kath mentioned, a, a loss of institutional memory there. And I think, you know, that's a risk for the spending review. Um, in education, we've got this really big question of how are we going to catch up lost learning? We already lost um, the, the catch-up czar earlier in the year because he wasn't happy that enough money was being provided. Now you have a new, new minister and a new secretary of state. They're going to have to argue with the Treasury for that money. Then on the other side of things, as you mentioned, the chief secretary is meant to be running this thing. And yet Steve Barclay's just um, left to go to the cabinet office. Now Simon Clark needs to come in. He's going to have to jump straight in and get on top of his brief. In terms of exactly how it will affect the SR, um, I think it's, it's hard to say, you know, that that means this department will get more or this department will get less. But it definitely makes it a bit more unpredictable. I think it increases the risk that at least some departments are not going to get Know, what they need, that the, the debate between the Treasury and the Department may not end up in the right place. In terms of will it affect you know, broader public spending decisions, have any impact on, on UC? 
Well, there, there was a narrow effect yesterday that the reshuffle completely detracted attention from the Labour Opposition Day debates on the universal credit cut, which is due to come um, at the start of October. But really, I think those are decisions that are going to be driven from number 10 and number 11, and their incumbents are still in post after yesterday. And would you say this Chancellor has even strengthened? Um, just looking at this narrow Whitehall manoeuvring of the spending review, um, he's, got, he's got a few departments wrong-footed by this um, and can forge ahead with uh, the plans that he had. Certainly, the, the spending review is already, that whole process in a way is set up to put the Treasury in, in quite a powerful position. You know, the, the Treasury sets, this is, the, this is all that we're going to spend, so all of you departments effectively need to fight among yourselves for, for the money that's coming out. Um, so certainly it will have done him, him no harm. An interesting point on this is the new Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Simon Clark. Uh, ben, I don't know how, how well you know him, but he was mooted as, as being somebody who's a Johnson supporter. So will Sunak step in and you know take over some of the spending uh, reviewed negotiations now? Or is Clark going to come in and is Clark going to have very much the Prime Minister in mind? Because that's another theme we're seeing this autumn and saw a lot over the, the social care and pensions negotiations was, was the Prime Minister versus the Chancellor, that age old battle. So it's interesting where Clark's going to be positioned on all of that I, I don't know him brilliantly but it's interesting how all of that is going to play out because number 10 is always deeply at pains to say oh no there, there isn't a rift between Sunak mm. and Johnson etc etc and, and you know it, it is worth touching as we're talking about the reshuffle of the people who actually weren't moved so Rishi Sunak being an obvious one uh, Pr- Pretty Patel in uh, Home Office being another I mean there, there is clearly a broad tension or difference of approach between the Treasury and number 10 in that the PM is more willing to give the green light to spending because so many of his uh, reforms and projects uh, have, have big pound signs next to them. And and, and Sunak, we're repeatedly told, is a fiscal conservative and at his heart wants to bring down spending, wants to bring down taxes. But, but as you said in the spending review, all departments have been told to find 5% cuts because of this huge social care NHS move they've done. So there is going to be a lot of pain. And when we begin to see the details of what those cuts mean in the next um, six or seven weeks, I think. Ben, I want to ask you about Michael Gove. Um, we will come back to that question of the spending review and um, and all the cuts um, in future podcasts. But I want to ask about Michael Gove. The papers don't agree. Uh, it's, it's quite striking. Some think he was promoted. Others say he was moved sideways. Your paper thinks he got demoted. What's going on? Well, I think that relationship, just as a political watcher, is the most fascinating relationship in government. Everybody knows the plotted history of their political relationship. They fought vote leave together, won Brexit together, were meant to be the PM Chancellor double act when they ran for the leadership and then go famously pulled out and said he, he, he could never work with Johnson. And then there was a period of years when they were apart. And then I don't think we've ever had quite the full details of how they... Um, came back on the same page. Uh, and then in the last couple of years, Gove has been kind of the PM's problem solver in cabinet office. A lot of the thorny, deep thinking questions are thrown to him. So what on earth do we do to counter Scottish independence? What on earth do we do on COVID passports, clearing the civil service backlog, d- doing a lot of the um, COVID stuff, heading up the COVID-O cabinet committee and at one point dealing with Northern, Northern Irish protocol. This is a really interesting approach uh, as you say, the, the the papers have read it in different ways. I think there was a hope or speculation that Gove could have been put into one of the big departmental jobs, Home Office, Foreign Office, 
I think if you step away, nobody would say communities and local government is one of the big cabinet roles of all those departments that are there. But then he does still retain some of these big parts of the PM's agenda. So he is still heading up uh, policy on the union, which is a huge looming threat that kind of hangs over Boris's premiership, whether, whether there will be a second Scottish independence vote or not. He is also in charge of spelling out what levelling up means, which is this critical other piece of Boris's domestic agenda. And in communities, he is doing planning, which if you have to pick one policy issue that will become a huge headache and clash between the Tory backbench, it would be that one, how much you change uh, develop, development rules to ease up house building. So he does have these big parts of the PM's uh, domestic agenda in his hands now, but he's no longer at the centre with a finger in all the pies in the cabinet office, and he hasn't been given a great office of state. So it's kind of mixed, mixed reshuffle for him. Yeah, from which he might be able to make a lot, and he has a big record of doing that at Defra when he was looking at agriculture at the Ministry of Justice. He really threw himself into it, and we did hear that he was feeling underemployed in his previous role, particularly when a lot of the tricky stuff of the Northern Ireland Protocol and Brexit was given to David Frost to negotiate and so on. So it may well be what he wants. It's something he would obviously make a lot of. That one H in the department, in the, in the Ministry of Housing, as you said, is, is a big, potentially a big battleground. Tom, do you think, though, that housing has been taken off the agenda? Well, certainly there was the announcement last week, wasn't there, um, or the reporting that the the planning reforms have been shelved. Who knows what whether that will you know, be reformed in some way. Michael Gove famously certainly likes to think of himself as a reformer, so perhaps there'll be some, some new Govian ideas there. I mean, the, the other aspect of housing that's really important is its relation to net zero as well, and some colleagues of our, ours doing work on net zero at the moment and the importance of you know, making our, our houses more energy efficient. So I wonder if that's another thing that, that Michael Gove will... Um, jump into now he's at MHCLG. He, he's good with a blank sheet of paper. Uh, I can say as a former colleague of his at the, at the Times. Kath, tell us about Dominic Raab. He ended up with the title of Deputy Prime Minister. The UK doesn't always have one of those. Is it a non-job? Yeah, um, I mean, it's one of my um, sort of bugbears is pointing out that it's not a real job in, in that sense. Uh, what I mean is it's not in the sense that people think of a vice president in the US as being, you know, a powerful job unto itself, that you're deputising at all times, you know, in the succession planning and, and all of that. And this was obviously a big debate we had um, when the prime minister was was unfortunately in intensive care last year. The issue is that, you know, this is a great title for Dominic Raab. He clearly wanted it. And similar to Angela Rayner and the comparisons have been made, you know, it extends his title. And I'm sure, you know, it's something that he feels gives him credibility over some of his colleagues. But whether or not he's deputised to by the prime minister is a completely different matter. And we've seen in the past different ways of doing this. May had, you know, at times a first secretary of state, another time she used Liddington as Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, the Cabinet Office job. Goh's been in that job, but, you know, has he really been a deputy to the Prime Minister? And meanwhile, Raab has been First Secretary of State, so he had that title for a while. The problem is MOJ is such a large department anyway, I doubt if Raab would have much bandwidth. But I think the key is going to be what cabinet committees are chaired and what it means in terms of the sort of pecking order between the most senior ministers in and around the cabinet office table and how Raab asserts himself and how the prime minister treats him. And that's that's all what it's going to matter for. Otherwise, it's just a title, really. Thanks for that. And Ben, what message does sending Liz Truss to the Foreign Office send to the world? 
Well, I don't know whether the message was designed for the world or designed for Liz Truss or designed for the public. I mean, there's a fascinating <laughs> question. We're talking to some of Liz Truss's allies this morning. Is it seen as helping her political reputation because she now has a great office of state and if and when the leadership becomes available, she, she's well placed to go for it. Or as someone who, who worked for her closely was telling me this morning, maybe actually it's quite helpful to have somebody who is the most popular cabinet minister among Tory members, according to that Conservative home poll, out of the country for most of the year, away from Westminster and the corridors of Westminster, meeting people in all different time zones, all different parts of the world. So that's a really fascinating one to unpack, but it does kind of cap this remarkable rise three different Tory prime ministers she's held cabinet posts from. Uh, she now has uh, a really big job and it will be fascinating to see how she approaches it. I mean, she is, is, is very good on the media side. Her team often get good headlines on the um, trade deals she's been um, pushing around the world. She's been doing a lot of jet setting in that role. So yeah, it's going to be a really interesting one to see how that plays out. Yeah, but I mean, one simple, maybe simplistic analysis is, is that, you know, we can expect a more trade-orientated approach. Uh, is that fair or is it um, is she going to switch, do you think? So I mean, China is the big question. Um, do we pursue trade deals? Uh, do we criticise them for human rights and um, increasing their military presence? And Britain is carefully ambivalent and ambiguous about this at the moment. But do you think she'll tilt that? On trade, I'm sure that will still be a central bit of it. I mean, the, the US angle is quite interesting on that. Dominic Raab was meant to be flying out to America on Sunday with some of the press and the Prime Minister for the UN General Assembly. Presumably now Liz Truss is going to be doing that. So will she meet her counterpart? And the US, you know, we're five years on from the Brexit vote. We are still not especially close to a US-UK trade deal that we were told was meant to be coming. Critical part of that is convincing the Biden team to, A, finally agree the terms on, on the negotiating bits, but also carve out the time in Congress to get it passed uh, and make sure it's a priority for them. China is a fascinating one. You see it playing out today with this new um, America, Australia, British defence deal and, and, and the nuclear programmes. I, I think when they published the um, Integrated Review Britain, it was really a kind of two-faced approach to China because one, it was clearly accepting this is the great strategic challenge of this century and we need to be firm on our values and human rights but also, actually, and they got criticised by some of the uh, China sceptic Tory MPs for doing this, they said, we also have to engage and we also have to engage on trade and they are a key business partner and you can't just pretend they're not a huge influence in the world. So it's somehow navigating that path through those two competing uh, objectives that's going to be part of Truss's yeah. uh, challenge. And Tom, we were talking about Stephen Barclay earlier and he's now at the Cabinet Office, not the Treasury Michael Gove in that job was was very focused on civil service reform, a subject beloved of the IFG. Do you think he's still going to push that? Well, whether he will try to push it or not, I I don't know. He may well do. What I think is very clear is that Stephen Barclay is not the big hitter that Michael Gove is, and Michael Gove was very much driving the other agenda. It was him who gave the the Ditchley lecture um, last year, and I think it was him who was driving it from from the ministerial side at least. So it may well be that Stephen Barclay continues to sort of try and push on that door, but whether whether he pushes as, as hard or as effectively as Michael Gove, and I think it's very unlikely that he would. I'm sure senior civil servants will will still be thinking about, about this, but you know, civil service reform is not easy, and the government has a lot of other big questions on its plate that are also not easy. So I think there's a definite risk here that it doesn't get 
the bandwidth that um, it might have got had Michael Gove stayed in post. Very interesting point. And Kath, do you agree? Yeah, I do. I mean, the the question, I mean, we've already touched on it, is how much, what else of an agenda does Stephen Barclay have and what does he try and craft out for himself uh, there? Because he'll be looking for future promotions. He'll be wanting to impress anyway. So he'll be wanting some big ticket stuff. And I think it's whether he thinks civil service reform will impress the prime minister or whether he tries to put his efforts into something else. I think that's going to be a big question, but it's a, it's a big worry for us anyway. Can I add a quick one on Stephen Barclay? One of the really fascinating angles is the COVID stuff, because he will start chairing the COVID-0 cabinet Mm -hmm. committees. And in the last 18 months, it's been the PM, Health Secretary, Chancellor and Gove as the four big decision makers on all the big um, COVID uh, choices. And now you have a guy who deeply understands the impact of lockdowns on the economy moving over and, and heading up one of those big COVID roles. So there is a chance when we get to conversations about more restrictions and potential lockdown in winter that he will be able to tilt the conversation in a more Treasury-centric view on that one. That's a really important point and one I think we're all, all going to remember. Thanks very much for making it. Okay, well, with that, let's wrap up this reshuffle conversation for now. There's an awful lot of it still going on. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Let's turn our attention to another Boris Johnson pick. That's William Shawcross, who's the Prime Minister's preference as Commissioner for Public Appointments. That's the independent figure who regulates appointments by ministers to the boards of public bodies. And this morning, Shawcross was up at a pre-appointment hearing held by the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Select Committee. Yesterday, the IFG published a paper setting out why this role is so important, why it's under strain, and the questions that the committee should ask William Shawcross. We're joined now by its author, IFG Senior Fellow Matthew Gill, who writes for us about regulation, public bodies, and all things concerned with that. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hi, Bronwyn. Just tell us, why is this role important, and who is William Shawcross? Well, it's important because this is, if you like, a a meta appointment. Uh, This is the person who regulates all public appointments. And and public appointments shape our national institutions from the BBC to the post office to the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority and lots more. So getting the right people into those positions really matters. Uh, And this person will oversee the system by which we, we do that. So William Shawcross himself, he's a, he's a journalist and a writer, but also more recently the former chair of the Charity Commission. So he has experience of being in a public appointment himself. Um, it's also worth knowing he's conservative politically. And in this role, he's going to have to call out government publicly uh, in an independent way. And so his challenge, aside from performing the role competently, is going to be to persuade everybody that he is indeed impartial uh, and, and capable of standing up to government when he needs to. And did the committee ask the questions you'd set out? It did, almost all of them, actually. It was it was a fairly short hearing, about 40, 45 minutes, but covered most of the, the ground. The only thing it didn't ask um, that we had put forward was whether departmental non-executive directors uh, should, um, should fall within the ambit of regulation. But that, I think, is a question for the future. Okay, well, we'll come on to those questions in a second. Kath, just give us a quick explainer. What is a pre-appointment hearing and do they make a difference? 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, going on to the meta point, they are basically Parliament's chance to scrutinise the very public appointments that William Shawcross will be in charge of overseeing, if that's not all too too convoluted. But as as Matthew was saying, you know, these these public appointments, these are um, lots of our various public bodies and ombudsmen, it's things like Ofcom, uh, you know, the BBC, as he says, um, Environment Agency and so forth. And since 2008, I mean, select committees were always doing a bit of scrutiny of this, but since 2008, there's been these things, pre-appointment hearings, a chance for select committees to sit down and grill the person before they were given a, a job and to tell the government if they disapproved of this person being given a job. And the government don't have to accept that. But by putting it all in public and making it a lot more transparent as a form of of scrutiny, it puts pressure on the government if the committee think that a particular appointment isn't appropriate. Um, So if they go ahead with it, you know, they're they're pushing against uh, that that scrutiny. So it's kind of a way of of ramping it up a bit, but without going the whole hog of a, a US system where effectively they might be able to veto uh, the jobs that people are getting. And what's been going wrong with the role? Well, in terms of public appointments, I mean, Matthew can probably speak to that a bit more than me. But I can it ask you both. <laughs> uh, it is this big question of the government's sort of role and influence over it and how much it is appointment by merit and how much it is about getting like-minded people. And there is a balance to be found between that. I mean, this government is in charge at the moment. The direction of travel for various public bodies is a matter of concern for them. They want to have people in place that they feel are doing the kind of job that they think needs to to happen. The question is how far that gets into politics and whether or not you therefore find people who aren't appointed by merit and whether it turns a lot of people off going into these jobs. It's been a long, uh, long-standing problem. Uh, Matthew, you've got a big list of things that are going wrong with it. Just take us into that. Yeah, I mean, what Kath's mentioned is 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 a good place to start and obviously the the questions around political involvement concern not only the preferred candidates of government becoming public knowledge before processes have been completed um, but also uh, alleged attempts to influence the members of panels that are making the selection decisions if you add to that also significant delays to appointments, which are leading to a need for uh, temporary appointments to be made, um, which then don't are not subject to the same level of regulation to fill them on an interim basis while the appointment process goes on. You build up to a situation in which candidates think you're applying for these roles and thinking, well, it would be a very long time before I know the outcome of this role. I might it might be known publicly that the government doesn't really want me in this role. Do, do I really want to want to go for this? And cumulatively that that it risks leading to fewer and lower caliber applicants to be to be leaders in in public life i mean the other thing that i think is an issue here is the number of unregulated appointments um so departmental neds i've mentioned but also leaders of um, czars um task forces those kind of things that are set up in government um, and fall outside of the scope of the work of the Commission of Public Appointments altogether. And, th- and there's quite a lot of that. So what we're describing, if you like, is the process within the subset of appointments which is regulated at all. Uh, and so there's a bigger picture beyond that as well. That's very well put. And so what reforms do you think are needed? First of all, um, there's improvements that need to be made in, in transparency in terms of how 
appointments are, are filled. There could be more done uh, in terms of when um, unregulated appointments are made, uh, progress on competitions. This is all supposed to be public, but isn't always as, as easy to find as it, as it should be. I think since the uh, Grimstone reforms uh, of, of 2016 to the appointments process, there has been considerable reliance on fair play uh, in terms of the, the politicization of the process and on the, the voice of the commissioner in being able to speak publicly and be listened to publicly where he sees the system not going very well. Uh, and it was a telling moment this morning, the PACAC hearing, where uh, William Shawcross said that he thought that the current commissioner's performance had demonstrated that the, the soft approach worked in that sense, that the commissioner not being a uh, an actor in the process, but being a regulator who speaks up, that that had, had worked. Whereas I think a different way of looking at that would be to say that the current commissioner has done his very best under constraints that have made the job difficult. And so I think looking again at whether the commissioner has the influence he needs in, in, in some of those situations is, is, is worth doing. Thanks for that. We should say that the current commissioner is, is um, with my predecessor as director of the Institute for Government, uh, Peter Riddle, and, and he's been um, very outspoken about these points. Ben, listening to all this, how concerned do you think a member of the public should be about what's happening? Well, I think what's really interesting is as political journalists, you kind of look forward at the coming years and try to see narratives that could begin to be harmful for the government and cut through with the public. And I think this one of cronyism, the Tories really do have to watch quite carefully because we saw in the last 18 months, the thing that the public really don't like is the idea, especially you can see this with the pandemic, of the public abiding by one rule and government ministers or senior government figures abiding by another. So we saw that with the uh, Dominic Cummings rules uh, saga and how, how that cut through. And when you see these rows playing out about COVID-related contracts, but also about how you appoint allies or friends or people you have a, some kind of debt or uh, an IOU to, to senior government positions, I think the Tories do have to watch how they do that. Uh, clearly, they have to stay on the right side of the regulations, but also just in public sentiment. I think if this narrative really gets up and running that they're kind of helping their friends and allies rather than having this clear-eyed uh, focus on the public, then that can be one that could be politically challenging for them. And Matthew, there's a particular row over Ofcom. This is a really powerful regulator dealing with communications, as you might guess, dealing with a lot of the media, dealing with the internet and, and things. Um, what's going on there? Well, I don't think it's entirely clear, but the allegation is that Paul Dacre uh, may reapply. The the, the, the process uh, for, for appointment of the chair of Ofcom failed to appoint. It's been restarted. And the question actually came up at the hearing this, this morning as to whether William Shawcross thought that candidates should be allowed to stand again after they had failed in a process. And it was his response to that, which was right, I think, was, yes, if you failed in a process, you should be able to apply again. But what, what the commission didn't do, and it was, a, a, I think, a very lightly veiled discussion of the Dacre example, it didn't pu push down onto the very specific question, which is, if you have been deemed unappointable in a process for a particular role, should you then in quick succession be able to apply again for that same role, having been deemed unappointable right. for it? And that, I think, is what the point that they should have pushed. That's, that's interesting. Ben, just for those listening from other countries um, and for whom Paul Dacre may not be 
uh, center stage of their imagination. Just take us into what, how Paul Dacre is positioned in the national imagination. Yeah, Paul Dacre, famous titan of the newspaper industry, um, long-standing, powerful editor of the Daily Mail for decades and decades, I think. Stepped down a couple of years ago. The Daily Mail, largely in its opinion pages, is seen as right of centre, often quite forthright in its editorial views. And Boris Johnson, clearly conservative prime minister, uh, and may look kindly on having someone from that broad political persuasion in one of those senior jobs at Ofcom. And so, you know, controversial, very uh, politically flavoured candidate, potentially going into a job that has been run very carefully in an almost technocratic way, but is become increasingly powerful as more and more powers have been given to it over the changing media scene, so that, hence the controversy. Kath, listening to all this, do you think it's going to change the system of appointments? No. Right. Short answer. Um, I, I think the pressure will keep up. And I do think actually this autumn onwards, the Prime Minister, I mean, possibly from what Ben was saying about being worried about getting stuck with with some of this, the Prime Minister will look to try and change the image and to show how you know that he cares about the sort of proprietary of public office and and so forth. So we might see some sort of you know noises towards issues around public appointments, the the role of ombudsman, and you know there's lots of other ethics and standards issues that that the IFG has been talking about recently. Um, but I'm not sure whether we'll see some substantial changes. But I live in hope. And I think um, Matthew's work for the Institute is going to be at the forefront of that. And we'll push the government towards that. Matthew, last word on the hopes for your own argument. I am doing the work. So I obviously have to live in hope. Um, I think um, the Sorry, issues are, are well known. Um, and, and I think there is there is momentum behind a, a potential change. So I think I think, you know, there, there may not be change in, in the rules immediately, but I think that, that there is certainly potential for greater attention to how the, these issues are handled. Uh, and that's important, given that the current system does rely on, on how individuals approach it. Yeah, well, thanks. And Ben sketched out for us the political danger if the government is seen to be doing running this too much in its own interests. So we will wait and see, but we're going to have to wrap it up there. So that is it for this edition of Inside Briefing. My huge thanks to Matthew Gill, Kath Haddon, Tom Pope, and especially to Ben Riley-Smith. Brilliant that you could join us today. If you like this podcast, do check out our sister podcast, IFG Live. You can listen back to my discussion this week with Amanda Spielman, Ofsted's Chief Inspector. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do give us a review. And you can find more of our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk, including Matthew's arguments about public appointments and William Shawcross and all those great reshuffle charts that we've been talking about too. And our live blog, thanks to Tim, is rumbling on. Well, reshuffle is over. It might work. It might not. What's for sure is that the IFG podcast team is strong and united. And we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.